0: everyone? Well, you are very kind. A few inches of snow does not keep you away because you're not weak, right? Very impressed, very impressed. And you're all going to heaven. That's what I wanted you to know. So, uh, hey, uh, I'm so glad to be here. This is actually the fifth time that I've been back. I sound like I'm hosting SNL right now, which is a little weird, but... uh, I I was saying to Brad a couple of weeks ago uh, on the phone, we were talking about me coming back again. I said, I I keep coming back so often, you need to give me an office or at least a desk or something around here. I feel like I'm an adjunct member of the staff here. It's so, so good to be back. Now, some of you who've never heard me speak here before are thinking right about now, he is not from around here. And uh, you would be right. We will not actually have subtitles this morning. So uh, I am speaking your language. It's the correct way of speaking, so uh, you just need to be dialing it in. Uh, my name's Darren, and uh, I am an Aussie living in Nashville, Tennessee, which is weird, right? It's, it's a little weird. Thank you, one person excited about Nashville. So um, I got married 12 years ago to an American girl named Brandy because I was about to get deported. And um, <laughs> no, we fell in love, and it worked well as well, right? So uh, I have three daughters, Uh, I have a daughter named Sydney, who is seven. Um, That is her name, it'd be like you calling your kid Plymouth, uh, which it kind of works for us, maybe not for you, unless you have a kid named Plymouth, and in that case, it's great, okay? Um, I I have a five-year-old named Scarlet, or you might call her Scarlet, Uh, and and then I have a three-year-old named Violet, and my little girls are the joy of my life. Uh, With a mom from Nashville and a dad from Australia, it creates a very confused kid um, like my girls say, g'day, y'all. <laughs> um, so, so pray for them, please. Uh, uh, last year, we planted two churches in Nashville uh, on Easter Sunday, and uh, we have been having the time of our lives. We feel like the fingerprints of Northridge are all over our church. Uh, we actually have some of our staff members now uh, who grew up at Northridge, and there were some families who came and, and, and moved down because they, they wanted to join us, which has just been beautiful. Last weekend, there was a family who stopped uh, by after church and said, uh, we go to Northridge, see you next weekend. And I'm like, yeah, this is great. Like In, in many ways, it sort of feels like you guys have, have, have been planning us and, it's, and we're so, so grateful, grateful for your support and your kindness to us. Uh, the most unreached age group in America, the most unchurched group of people are people in their 20s. Uh, college students, Nashville has one hundred thousand college students. People move from all over the country and all over the world to go to twenty one universities in in Nashville, and then sixty percent of them choose to stay when they graduate. so there is this exploding 20 something population disproportionately large in nashville and While uh, a lot of churches are working out like how do we reach them we 've decided to uh, You know, quit all our jobs and and move to this area and plant churches right in the middle next to these universities to try to to reach these students. And um, by God's grace, things have been going great. Um, Last weekend was our highest attendance ever and things just continue to grow and and be great. So thank you for your support, it's just been great. So I wanted to give you a little bit of an update on what's been happening this last year. Now, I'm gonna be with you for the next three weekends. So um, thank you, I'm excited about it as well. We are going to be doing a series called The Line. And just to, just to frame this up a little bit, uh, I want to talk a little bit about The Line. Now, when I first moved to America, I noticed that there is a kind of Christianity in the United States, and it's not exclusively in the US, it's, it's, it's in the Western culture. But there is a kind of Christianity that we don't often talk about, but subconsciously, many of us have bought into. And, and, and in this kind of Christianity, it's really important to believe correct theology. So we talk about the gospel, and, 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 and people care about the gospel. Uh, if you ever read Christian blogs, or people argue about certain belief systems and, and all of that kind of stuff, you have a bunch of bloggers and people who live with their moms, and they argue all the time uh, with each other about about theology. So what you believe is important and we believe that Jesus died and rose and, um, you, and, and, you know, and conquered sin and that there was this great exchange of our sin upon Jesus and Jesus' righteousness upon us if we are in Christ. We believe that, that's important. But what is interesting around this sort of pervasive um, pragmatics of Christianity is that we kind of believe something and then we have a collection of things that we don't do in the Christian community. And if we do these things, then we, we feel a sense of shame from other Christians. Now, they kind of increase in severity, there's sort of like a sin list, like maybe um, the most mildest of sins we would say uh, is gossip. We don't call it gossip in the church, we call it prayer requests. But, um, <laughs> but, did That hit a bit close to home there. Sorry about that. We're just getting started, folks. You know, so, um, but you know, like maybe we would say, you know, like gossip is is sort of the mildest of sin in Christendom, and then uh, a little bit more than that maybe is swearing or cussing. You know, when you're having a conversation with a Christian and they drop a bomb and you're like, oh, you're that kind of Christian. Okay then, you know, like you know what I'm talking about. And then um, maybe a little bit more is cheating. Cheating on your taxes is something you shouldn't do. You're like, it's not cheating. I'm just massaging the numbers. Um, But, you know, we're we're taking that, you know, a little more seriously than maybe, like, you go to adultery and, like, this is something that within Christendom, obviously, we do and and need to take this seriously. And and then maybe we go all the way down to perhaps the unforgivable sin, Um, maybe according to the Scriptures, would be, cheering for Ohio State, right? I don't know. That's the word of God. You can't argue with that. So what is interesting to me is that there is a kind of, of Christian experience that cares a lot about what you believe and then what you don't do, now, this is not the movement that Jesus launched in the first century. He did not come and then rally a bunch of people together and said, all right, people, here we go. We shall be known by what we don't do. Come join me. We're gonna go and not do a bunch of stuff. It's not particularly compelling, is it? But some of you probably feel this tension. You ever feel the tension of where you're, You're talking to a friend who is outside of church or outside of a faith context, and and you just have this sense that the church is known more by what they're against than what they're for. Uh, Somehow, a community where the central operating system is grace gets known as a community of judgment. How did that happen? What we're going to be talking about in this series is what it looks like to live above the line. Now, Jesus' message was not primarily about what you don't do, it was about what you do. Jesus is calling a community of people to do dumbfounding acts of justice and mercy and generosity and compassion and love and kindness. How many know that these are the kind of things, when, when you do this kind of stuff, when you serve other people, when you, when you show personal levels of sacrifice to give or to share or to be kind to other people, that is what makes the world scratch their heads and go, why would people do that? People are busy. Why would they they give their money to other people? Why would they give their time? Why would they serve? Why would they do these things? That is the kind of life that is absolutely compelling. It's a picture of the kingdom of God. So the next three weeks are gonna be centered around less about what you don't do and more about what you do. Now, the anchor verse that we're gonna be spending our time in is from the book of Micah. Micah 6, verse eight. It's a fairly well-known verse. And uh, the reason it's well-known is that because it it gives sort of a summary of of what God is looking for from his people. Micah 6, verse eight. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Now there are three big themes that are in this text and we're gonna spend the next three weeks unpacking them. Justice, mercy, and humility. And so today, we're going to begin with justice. Several years ago, I got invited on a trip where there were 25 leaders from a predominantly white church and 25 leaders from a predominantly African American church And, and 50 of us jumped on a bus together and we spent the next week retracing the life of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. We learned about the Civil Rights Movement. We went to Selma, Alabama and walked across the bridge. We went to Atlanta. We went to Memphis where Dr. King was assassinated. And this was, uh, this was an education process that was not just reading about or hearing about the Civil Rights Movement or hearing about the reality of um, racism. But it was uh, this beautiful merging of relationships, and, and, and there are some beautiful, long friendships that have come out of that time that, that I got to have. Now, on this one particular day, we were having a Bible study, and uh, we were talking about justice. And because I'm a preacher, uh, I'm sitting there thinking, well, I know about this, and so you know, I'll just sort of observe and, and listen to what everyone else is talking about. And as we had this discussion, this guy who was a theologian started breaking down the idea of righteousness and justice. Now, all throughout the Old Testament, the two words, righteousness and justice, show up together over and over again. These two theological themes are paired together, righteousness and justice, righteousness and justice. I'll give you a couple of examples. Psalm 35, sorry, Psalm 33, verse 5 says, the Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. Psalm 97 says, Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Psalm 103 says, The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. Amos 5 says, But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never failing stream. Righteousness and justice, righteousness and justice. They show up together all the time, these twins in the Old Testament. You know how many times these two theological words, these two themes show up together in the New Testament? Zero. So we're in this Bible study and this guy's saying, yeah, all throughout the Old Testament, righteousness, is justice, all throughout the New Testament, it shows up zero times. Do you know why that is? And I'm thinking to myself, I have absolutely no idea. The Greek word... Where we get the word righteousness is the word dikaiosune. Dikaiosune is translated in the New Testament into the word righteousness. You are reading, most of you are reading an English version of the Bible being translated from the original Greek uh, in the New Testament. Dikaiosune is translated righteousness. Here's what this theologian said to me. Kaiosune does not only mean righteousness, it also means justice. So to get the full meaning of what this Greek word means, you actually, more precisely, more correctly, need to insert the word justice into the text whenever you see the word righteousness. And I thought, if this is true, this changes everything. Now, I'm going to read a couple of verses, and whenever I say righteousness, we're all going to say together, and justice. Have a look at the implications of this. Matthew 6, 33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and justice, and all these things will be given to you as well. 2 Corinthians five twenty one, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him, we might become the righteousness and justice of God. 1 Peter two twenty four. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness and justice. Live for justice. Live for righteousness and justice. All of a sudden, I am taking all of these epic New Testament verses that I know and I memorize and all of that, And to get a full understanding of what is going on in the text, you have to insert justice into this. And I'm thinking, if this is true, I've been missing half the gospel. I had subconsciously bought into the notion that evangelism, reconciling people with God, is exclusively what the gospel is all about. And then acts of compassion and justice are optional initiatives that some Christians do for extra credit. You know, if you're into that, right? And what I have discovered is that justice is not a peripheral piece of our mission, but a central mandate of living in the kingdom. And recently I was thinking about the way that companies use logos and the way that companies use brands. And I was thinking about the most famous brands and the most famous logos in all of the world. And, and there are many global brands that we know that no matter what country you go in, if you just see that little mark, if you see that little um, symbol, you know exactly what it is, right? And in some of them, you even, you even know a little bit about the values of that corporation or organization by the, by, the, by the image. Like, i give you a few examples. Take a look at this one. This is, of course, Nike. This is the Nike swoosh. This was designed by a college student for $35. You now can't even buy a pair for $35. So what do we know about the Nike swoosh? Some marketers say that in in history, this is the perfect logo. It's got like a sleek aerodynamic shape. It looks like a check mark, like someone was winning or they got it correct. So that's what we can learn about Nike from looking at their logo. Let me show you another one. This is, of course... McDonald's, and we see a mmm, like mmm, massive weight gain. Mmm. <laughs> let me show you another one. This is, of course. Yes, if you're a cyber criminal and you're into identity theft, this is who you target. That's how it works. Uh, let, me, let me show you another one. This is, of course. Some of you might know this, but the name Starbucks comes from the story Moby Dick. Uh, uh, the, the ship, the Pequod, the first mate was Starbuck, and uh, that's where they ripped the name. Uh, some of you thinking, how do you know this stuff, Wikipedia? Anyway, um, this, is, this, this imagery here is from a 16th century woodcut. Uh, this is a mermaid, a mythology uh, mermaid, or, or more specifically, it's called a siren, twin-tailed siren, now these creatures were famous for luring people in, then stealing their money. <laughs> so much has changed. Yeah. All right. Let me show you another one. This is, of course, AT and T. Yeah. We have five lines here, each representing how many times your call drops out in a conversation. Then we have another one here. This is, of course, exactly the sign of sin. (laughs) This is the moment of the fall, right here. An apple with a bite taken out. I tell you, it is a sin with how much their products cost and how much money they're making, but that's another story. This is actually an image of knowledge, You know, the tree of good and evil, the tree of knowledge, and uh, they're wanting people to know that if you buy their products, you're gonna be cool and you're gonna have knowledge. Does anyone know what the most famous logo in all the world is? I mean, throughout history, the most famous logo. Let's put it up. Yeah, Jesus wins, right? Jesus wins. For centuries, followers of Jesus have rallied under this symbol, this logo. Is it possible that the logo of our faith has a hidden message to its mission? Is it possible that our logo actually has uh, like, a, like a secret message of, of the gospel embedded in the look of this. The, the, the cross is a, is a vertical line and a horizontal line. Embedded in the, sim, uh, the central symbol is the mission of horizontal and, and vertical. What did Jesus do? Well, he dealt with our sins on the cross so that we could reconcile vertically with God and so we could reconcile horizontally with one another. Micah 6 says, to act justly, that's horizontal. To love mercy, that is horizontal. And to walk humbly with your God, that is vertical. So what is justice? If we're gonna talk about justice today, then let's break it down and get really specific. This is not a concept that we often stop to kind of wrap our minds around. A simple definition would be this. Justice is making wrongs right, And there are different nuances of justice. There's retributive justice, which is like in the criminal justice system, where someone gets the appropriate punishment for the crime that they have done. There's also social justice, which primarily has to do with the distribution of wealth and power. Biblical justice is even more holistic than that. It is built on the foundational premise that every human being was made in the image of God. We all reflect our creator. We are all image bearers of divinity. No matter our skin color, no matter our size, no matter what language we speak or where we're from, we all bear the image of God. In the book, Just Imagine the World for God, The authors say this about justice. Look at this. The justice of God requires that there is special concern shown to the poor, the widows, the orphans, and for the immigrants referred to in Scripture as the aliens. In fact, the litmus test of Scripture on whether justice is being done is the plight of the poor and the needy in society. The true measure of justice is how the most vulnerable members of the community live. So some people ask me at times, well, then what's the difference between compassion and justice? Well, let me give you like a simple metaphor. Compassion is a step towards justice. Compassion is bringing fresh water to a village because the water supply is contaminated. Justice is investigating why the water is contaminated. And then discovering that there is an industry or there is a factory that is upstream that's polluting the water. Justice is stopping the pollution so that the people may have fresh water and they may thrive autonomously and not be dependent on gifts or help from other people. Psalm 82 verse three says, give justice to the poor and to the orphan. Uphold the rights of the oppressed and the destitute. Rescue the poor and the helpless. Deliver them from the grasp of evil people. Justice can be dangerous. I mean, this is not a simple thing. Being someone who is enacting the movement of justice can put yourself in danger. And any form of injustice, in any context, in any area of the world, grieves the heart of God. One of my heroes, who I think is living out justice as much as anyone that I've heard of, is a guy named Gary Hogan, who is the president of International Justice Mission. This guy's an attorney in Washington who is spending his life going after the forgotten and the marginalized and the abused, the people who have no voice particularly spending his time on rescuing children from sex trafficking in America and all around the world. Then when he rescues the children, he then turns his attention on prosecuting the perpetrators. And that is the kingdom of God. Now, I wanna read a quote from him, and it's kind of lengthy, and so I I just wanna ask you to try and stay with me as I read this. These are his words. Coming to understand God's compassion for the oppressed and the way he suffers with them has completely transformed my understanding of God. His real presence amid the horrendous injustice of our earth has finally allowed me to understand why God hates injustice so much. I have had to imagine what it would be like if I, like my God, had to watch, hear, and witness every brutal act of injustice on the earth every day, what must it be like for God to be present this year at the rape of all the world's child prostitutes, at the beatings at, of all the world's prisoners of conscience, at the moment the last breath of hope expires from the breast of each of the millions of small children languishing in bonded servitude? If we had to see it and hear it every day like our God does, we would hate injustice too. To understand where the God of compassion has been is to begin to understand God's passion for justice. Justice for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is not a good idea, a noble aspiration, a theoretical satisfaction or an impersonal principle. It is his beating heart. He is the man of sorrows familiar with suffering who weeps with those who weep. When the needs of the poor and the heart of God collide, the kingdom of God comes. Now, this is not a new idea. In the Old Testament, every 50 years, they celebrated the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee was where debts were forgiven and land was returned back to the original families. Rich and poor were leveled. In this culture that was centered on agriculture, the land was the primary source of of wealth and of revenue. Every 50 years, equality was restored. Justice was served. Wealth was leveled. Families were given a clean slate and a fresh start. And it's still fascinating to me that today, much of the injustice that's happening around the world, much of the conflict that's going on is still around overt land rights. Who owns what land? In Zimbabwe or in Africa or in the Middle East, who owns what land drives massive international conflict? And some of the most overt discriminatory issues of injustice in our world today are around racial discrimination, gender inequality, extreme poverty, Education, the AIDS pandemic, and unthinkable atrocities happening to children and sex trafficking. And we live in an unusual time in history. In one sense, half the world is dying of obesity and half the world is dying of starvation. Over one billion people live in extreme poverty, which is less than a dollar a day yet there is five times enough food to feed the entire world. 33 million people are infected with HIV AIDS, 25 million in in Africa alone. More than 1.1 billion people don't have access to clean drinking water, and the result of that is that every day, 25,000 people die. Now, when you hear this, do you ever think to yourself, Why doesn't God do something about this? Do you ever think, like, how how does he sit idly by? When there is so much injustice that is going on in the world, there are so many atrocities that are happening around the, the globe. Why doesn't God do something about this? Gary Hogan says, God has a plan to help bring justice to the world, and his plan is... Us, the church. In the New Testament, the metaphor that Jesus uses of the church is the body of Christ. Now that is a compelling metaphor. If you stopped to think about that? The church is called the body of Christ. Christ is the head, the church is the body. This feels like a bad strategy to me. I mean, God could do anything in the world any way he wanted to, but he actually chooses to deploy and and, and send out the church to do the work of the kingdom of God. We are the body of Christ. Jesus is not like distracted off in heaven somewhere looking at something else. He is passionately acquainted with the work of what is going on in the world and he is deploying the church. Why doesn't God do something about this? He is calling the body of Christ. That is his strategy. Do you guys remember Christopher Reeve? I was, I was thinking about this this weekend. Christopher Reeve was most famous for playing Superman. Remember that? Uh, 1978, can you believe that? The first Superman uh, film came out and there were a couple more that were in the 80s and all of that. Christopher Reeve was six foot four. He was athletic. He was ripped. He was chosen because he resembled the perfect physique, much like myself, right? And what? Christopher Reeve was was chosen because he had this sense of power, yet this meekness and this softness in his persona. He looked like that he could play both the, the, the man of steel And then he could also play this bumbling fool with Clark Kent. And Christopher Reeve was the guy that was chosen. He actually did a superb job of it. He's most famous for playing that role. Now, you guys remember what happened. In 1995, he was involved in a very serious horse riding accident that left him paralyzed from the neck down. Now, Christopher Reeve was educated at Cornell and Juilliard. Not a lot of people know that. He was a highly educated, very, very smart man. But after his accident, his body just didn't work anymore. There were still dreams in his heart. There were still visions in his mind. But his body just wouldn't respond. It was paralyzed. I wonder if this is how God feels sometimes. You think about the heart of Jesus for the poor, or his heart for the marginalized, or the abused, or the forgotten. Maybe at times, the church just looks paralyzed. The reason for a body is to be the physical manifestation of the dreams of the heart. Think about the dreams that Jesus has to be the redemptive play in all of the world. And yet maybe there's just this sense that the body is just not responding. God has a plan to help bring justice to the world and his plan is the church. I have a friend who's a construction lawyer named Bob. His name's Bob Goff. Last year, uh, he invited me to his house and uh, we spent a week together This guy is an extraordinary man, Um, loves Jesus, and um, sees the world very uniquely, very, very gifted guy. Several years ago, he was telling me, several years ago, someone invited him to Uganda. He went over to Uganda, and he he saw a bunch of impoverished families, particularly children, and uh, realized that none of them were getting an education, none of them were able to go to school. So he decided that he would actually start a school in this community. Now what he realized is that when you start a school in a community where there is no school, that is not an act of compassion. It's an act of justice. You see, when a kid gets educated, it changes the trajectory of the future of the generation of that family. Education is a justice issue. The church should care about education, right? So so what happens is that when a kid gets educated, then they they start moving on and they're able to get different kinds of employment, they're able to generate different kinds of of revenue for the future, and then also their family of origin. They're able to take care of their family of origin as well. Education is a justice issue. So he discovers this. He, He starts a church in one community and then he starts another one, he starts another one, he starts... Starts uh, churches, all churches. Sorry, starts schools all over Uganda, and these kids start getting educated. And the uh, the government of Uganda starts to take notice, and they approach him. They invite him in, and they invite him to be a diplomat, uh, official diplomat in in the government of Uganda. He becomes the American consulate to to Uganda. He actually has an official position, and he thinks, well, this is great. So he lives in the United States, flies over to Uganda a lot and and does all kinds of different responsibilities working with the government in Uganda and one day he discovers that there is a subversive movement that is going on within the society of Uganda that has everyone in fear and that is that there is a collection of witch doctors who are abducting children and they are severing body parts from them and then they are trafficking, they are selling on the black market, body parts of children. These are these are limbs, private parts, or all, all kinds of different areas of children. Then they kill the children. Now, the reason that they were doing this—this this is how sick this is. The reason that they were doing this is because they believed some sort of weird voodoo histori- history that if you if you bury children's body parts in the foundation of a building, then the building will ultimately have prosperity. So these witch doctors have been trading children's body parts. So Bob hears about this, and he is outraged. And he says, someone should do something about this. And they say, we know, but everyone is afraid to. They're afraid that they're gonna get killed if they do this. You don't understand what you are messing with here. And he said, I wanna do something about this. I think it's what Jesus would do. And they said, well, a case has never been tried here in Uganda, and so the law is not able to be enforced. It's, it's illegal under international law, but they have to ratify the law, then they have to find a perpetrator, and they have to find a victim so that they can trial a case, bring a legal precedent, and then be able to enforce the law. And he says, Bob says, I will do this. So with a bunch of looking around and, and, and studying and all kinds of stuff, they find this evil guy. They find this witch doctor by the name of George Carby. And to their astonishment, this is very rare, but to their astonishment, they find an eight-year-old boy who had been abducted and he, his private parts had been cut off and he'd survived. And they approached this little boy and they said, if you will be courageous, young man, and if you come into court and you confront the witch doctor that did this to you, then we will change the direction of this country forever regarding this issue. Do you think that you could do that? And he nodded and this little boy, called him Charlie, this little boy showed up in court and he confronted the ferocious man, George Carby, Uh, in court, and then this guy was convicted and sent to prison for the rest of his life. This is a picture of the little boy. This is Charlie. This little boy changed history in this country, and that there, my friend Bob, is a Christian guy who said, we are deployed to do the work of justice in the world. So Bob comes back to the U.S., and he's on a plane one day. He's flying with this guy, and this guy's saying, What do you do? And one thing leads to another, and he starts telling him about the story of Charlie and, and being in Uganda. And, and, and this guy goes, Well, that is very interesting. Let me tell you what I do. I am the leading authority, I am the, the, the leading surgeon on reconstructing body parts on children, particularly particularly private parts for, for little boys. And he said, if you can get Charlie here, I will do this reconstructive surgery for free. Let's do this. So Bob goes back to Uganda, because he is you know, working for the government, he's able to work out all of the immigration stuff. He brings Charlie back to the US and for free, this kid gets all of this reconstructive surgery and it is the kingdom of God coming, right? It's beautiful. So Bob decides he's gonna go back to Uganda and he wants to meet with this witch doctor who will will spend the rest of his life in prison. So he, he sets up a time where he goes into the prison to meet with George Carby. He's waiting there and then this guy walks out, this witch doctor. He sees Bobby, immediately recognizes who he is and he immediately starts sobbing. And just with, with a brokenness, he said, I have done terrible, terrible things. Bob sits with him and shares about all of the things that had gone on in the life of Charlie and how redemptive purposes were playing out. He starts sharing about what Jesus is doing in the world, that Jesus is actually putting people back together again broken people, hurt people, evil people. Jesus is actually putting people back together again. And this guy, George Carby, a, a, a ferocious man, looked at Bob and, and wanted to know more about that and Bob led him to become a follower of Jesus in that prison cell right there. Now, often sort of our mental construct is that we have we have people that are good and we have people that are evil and they need to sort of remain in their categories, right? No one is beyond the grace and the mercy of God and God is actually at work in the world in, in good people and evil people, in all kinds of people. God is healing and restoring people all over the world including a witch doctor who will spend the rest of his life in prison in Uganda. It's justice. It's living above the line. So what does justice look like here in Michigan? What does it look like to live above the line? I, I heard that you recently had 10,000 of you that were serving with Feed My Starving Children and and putting together meals, put together a couple of million meals. It's a beautiful movement of, of compassion. What does justice look like? By the way, this is not optional if you're a follower of Jesus. It's actually not an option to just kind of live like everyone else and attend a service on the weekend. Like, this is what it looks like to be a part of the kingdom of God. This is what it looks like to reorient your your priorities and the way that you spend your time and the way that you use your resources to be a part of the redemptive purposes, to be a part of the body of Christ. This is what we do. And you're probably feeling some conflict inside of you. You're probably feeling like, "Ah, I I don't know what to do with this. Well, keep wrestling in that. Keep leaning into that. There are some really practical things that you can start to do to take some steps. Even partnerships that Northridge has set up with different, uh, different initiatives locally here. There's the soup kitchen. There's prison ministry. There's community garden. There's a food drive. There's adoption and foster care. There's royal family kids camp. There's young lives camp, which is for teenage uh, pregnant mothers. Uh, there is life remodeled. On the global front, there is Nicaragua and Africa and Colombia and the Philippines. There is all kinds of partnerships and initiatives. I I, I just want us to be a part of a community that are known not by what we don't do, but by what we do. God has a plan to help bring justice into the world and his plan is the church. It's you and me. Now we're gonna close by standing together and I'm gonna pray. So let's stand. Let's pray. God, I pray for... Northridge Church in Plymouth and in Ann Saline and Brighton Howe and the community that are online. I, I I pray for the different expressions of the church. And I pray that their efforts would join together with other churches in Plymouth and in the Detroit area and throughout Michigan. I pray that we may be stepping into an era of the of the season of the church where churches start uniting and linking arms with one another and rising up to be a force of justice. God, we look around and we see the body of Christ and we do not want it to be unresponsive. We do not want it to be paralyzed. I pray that convictions in our heart would turn to action in our lives. That we not, would not just be hearers of the word and deceive ourselves, but that we would do what it says. And I pray out of pure joy that we would be living out, sacrificially living out the beauty of being above the line. Deploy us, God. Use us. May we be a part of the redemptive purposes that are going on in the world. And God, for those who Uh, Perhaps at the very beginning of starting a relationship with you, I pray that there for those who are who are saying that they're not even uh, wouldn't even consider themselves a Christian. And today, I pray that they would turn their attention to you. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the death and the burial and the resurrection, for taking our sin upon yourself and releasing us with the righteousness of God. I pray that if there are those right now who are making that decision, that they would turn their hearts towards you, they would surrender their lives to you, God. This is our prayer. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. On the way in, uh, you received a program, it looked like this. If you prayed for the first time to invite Jesus to lead your life, then I would encourage you just to tear this off. You can fill it out. Down the bottom it says, today I prayed to receive... Jesus Christ in my life for the first time. You can tear off the card, and then on the way out, you can hand it in to uh, one of the ushers or, or put it in one of the boxes. If you're online, you can just, uh, you can see on the page there some next steps so that the team at Northridge can follow up with you. Uh, I am so excited that over the next three weeks, we get to try to wrestle and, and, and discover what it looks like for us in our context, in our families, in our lives, to be living above the line. And um, we're gonna close by singing this song. And may this song be an anthem that sends us out and that we may be motivated to live differently as a result of the compelling word of God. Thanks so much for being here. I'll see you guys next week. Bye.